I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. We've all heard the old one about denial not being a river in Egypt, but clearly it's proved to be a profitable pattern of corporate behavior, lying and denying. For most individuals, lying isn't easy. It takes a real effort to try to convince anyone that a lie is a truth. But Not for so many corporations. In her new book, Industrial Strength Denial, Barbara Fries looks into case studies of corporate denial. She reveals the group dynamics of corporate deception, how cognition and morality may be altered by tribalism, power, anonymity, and the quest for money to answer how so many big businesses can do what they do. Barbara Fries is the author of Coal, A Human History. Barbara, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks. Happy to be with you. She's an environmental attorney and former Minnesota Assistant Attorney General. Her interest in corporate denial was sparked by cross-examining coal industry witnesses disputing the science of climate change. She lives in St. Paul a city I've never been. One reviewer explained uh, that uh, Freeze examines narratives designed with the explicit aim of distorting and deceiving. Industrial strength denial reveals the cynicism, manipulation, and hypocrisy of corporations seeking to rationalize patently destructive, though profitable, practices such as slavery or selling toxic chemicals, tobacco, fossil fuels, etc., Now, my naivete sometimes shows through. When I was a kid in the 1950s watching Saturday morning cartoons, I think we all assumed that the marketers of cereal were parents themselves and would never out-and-out lie about a product. This corporate ability to deny the truth, is it a relatively recent phenomenon? Uh, It is not a recent phenomenon. I think it's probably been around roughly as long as, well, at least as long as we've had corporations, and and frankly, probably older than that. As you mentioned, one of the industries I profile is the slave trade. And um, when when faced with an abolition movement, and and I'm speaking now about the British slave trade, they were uh, very modern in their ability to respond and to deny and to rationalize um, and, and that's actually why I use them as the first example in the book. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's interesting that uh, slavery has, uh, historians for many years, well, not historians, but it's been attempted to relegate it to something we don't talk about, that it's different mm-hmm. from America. Somehow the history of American slavery has been relegated to being pictured as an aberration. Mm-hmm. But as time has gone on, it's, I mean, certainly more historians recognize that it's actually a key part of our culture. What, what, if anything, can the slave trade of centuries ago tell us about 
Anything useful about the phenomenon of industrial denial? Is it possible that rationalizations of the slave trade were a precursor to fossil fuel industries denying climate change? What about that? I I think it is fair to say that they were at least the first really well-documented situation of corporate denial. And I, too, want to be careful in talking about slavery. I was actually kind of hesitant to even look into it that much because... I don't want to draw a moral equivalence between selling people where the the brutality is so obvious and selling fossil fuels where you, it's easier to, to certainly pretend that you're not doing harm because it's, it's much more distant. Um, but I really couldn't resist describing the, the denials that this industry came up with because I think it really was, it really did, um, sort of foreshadow what other industries did, certainly its use of euphemism and appealing to nationalism, and and also, I think, trying to um, weave this complete counter-narrative about the reality of what their industry was doing. And and one reason they could do that was that this was the British slave trade, and, and Brit- the British um, dominated the slave trade in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And so it was very far away from the British people. They, they would go to Africa, they would take these slaves, take these Africans captive, take them to the West Indies, usually where they would end up on sugar plantations. So all of of this trade was happening beyond the sight of the British public, the shareholders of these corporations that were doing it, and of most of Parliament, although much of Parliament actually was in the industry, which made things a little complicated. Um, But uh, they, you know, they would describe how Africans were eager to be purchased and try to market themselves as worthy of, you know, capable of doing the labor. And they described these ridiculously festive crossings of the Atlantic where the the Africans were were singing and dancing and doing beadwork on, on the deck and enjoying themselves and how the plantations were just so comfortable and they had these cozy little cottages and fantastic health care and I mean it was it was just appalling you know just just that part of the denial trying to create this sort of counter narrative so uh, yeah it was it was kind of an irresistible example of corporate denial and and of course such an extreme one that I think it gives us a really useful uh, illustration of of just what a a lucrative industry can rationalize, especially when it is socially accepted, as of course it, it was and and celebrated. Mm. Yeah, and being socially accepted was was important and uh, interesting. How some people in this country could see through it, but other people. They bought into the lie. They did. They thought, oh, the Africans are so much better off now. They're being treated well, uh, and it's it's better for them than had they been left in their home uh, countries. That was actually a key part of, of the industry's denial, that they, they portrayed themselves as rescuing these folks from Africa. Yeah, and, and then bringing them into a more civilized state. Uh, and so, yeah, it was it was quite appalling. That that is uh, impressive. That does take some real chutzpah to lie like it. That. Really does. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, psychologically as individuals, uh, it, it, it seems that consciously lying is difficult. It, I, you know, if, if I have a hard time lying, quite frankly, people can yeah, usually sure. tell. If, <laughs> uh, do people feel more comfortable lying in their role as employees of a corporation than than they do lying in their personal lives? And and how does that work psychologically? 
Well, I think the first step is they're less likely to to admit to themselves that they're lying, right? I mean, as you said, it's hard to lie, and that's partly because we want, we're worried people will find out, but partly because we want to maintain our self-image as being basically honest people, right? Yeah. So the first step is, do you believe you're lying at all? And there are all kinds of ways that we can prevent ourselves from accepting the fact that we're lying and, and sort of deceive ourselves. And I think that does get a lot easier in the corporate context because you're surrounded by your tribe and they're all sharing, uh-huh. sharing the lie with you. And maybe your boss told you to do so, so you don't feel so responsible. And then suddenly you're lying, you know, even if you are the boss and, and you're saying something and, and you, you kind of know it's a lie, but it doesn't feel like you're lying out of just some kind of rank self-interest. It feels like you're being loyal to your shareholders or you're protecting your employees. And so it becomes something that feels a little, well, a lot more noble than if you were just outright deceiving somebody for your own personal self-interest. Interesting. So it's for the greater good. I mean, I know, like, I'm just telling myself, oh, this feels awful. I hate doing this, but it's for the greater good. And and if you're somebody like GM, you know, what you say is what's good for GM is good for the country because you feel like you are just so big and you don't perceive any difference between your own self-interest and the whole nation. That's true. And what's good for GM is good for America. I forget who said that, but somebody did. At what, it was, it was, do you know who it was? I, I can't remember. Uh, um, I think his name was Wilson. I do quote him in the book. He was oh. a, a GM executive who was then being... Testifying before Congress uh, for a cabinet position. I believe you are right. Uh, one recent example of corporate denial happened just after the 2016 election. This was fascinating to me when Mark Zuckerberg said it was pretty crazy to think that the fabricated political stories that spread on his Facebook influenced the elections in any way. Does that example fit within the same pattern as? Others you describe in the book, and talk about that if you would, please. I mean, it's just yes. fascinating how, how he could say it didn't matter. I, I think that it, it fit very much with those patterns. And I think, I think he did walk that back a little bit later, but his immediate reflex to say, uh, no, this is crazy. First of all, just the use of the term crazy uh, very much reflects this tradition of, of other corporate executives who, who immediately dismiss their opponents as hysterical. That term is used uh. all the time. Um, being emotional, uh, sometimes they're just criticizing them for being ignorant. Very often they're criticizing them for being uh, zealots or, or supporters of a cause, basically sort of darkly hinting at some kind of sinister um, political motives or, or enemies who are, who are behind this. Um, but I think another part of it is just this uh, desire to trivialize your yes. own company's impact when you're talking about negative, uh, potential negative impacts. Even if you've spent most of your time trumpeting your company's positive impacts, when people start saying, oh yeah, but what about this? Uh, what about your impact on the election, for example, or on the ozone layer, or on global warming, if you're talking about other industries? There is, I think, this reflex to suddenly just say, who, little old us? We, we couldn't possibly have had that kind of an impact. And, and I think that, ah. that reflex and, and that, that uh, Zuckerberg was, was reflecting. And, you know, I talk about a reflex 
um, I think things like this may very well start with a, a kind of psychological reflex, something that any of us would likely have an inclination toward if we didn't stop ourselves. But then I think what happens is these psychological reflexes turn into a corporate strategy, and they play on other people's similar reflexes, and then that corporate strategy gets pursued by public relations and, and lawyers and, and advertising and, and often then by the, the sort of advocacy groups that these companies can donate oh, yeah. their money to. And so then it goes from a reflex to a corporate strategy to sort of an industry of its own, and eventually it becomes an ideology. And mm. I think that's what we've seen happen in this country, particularly in the last 30, 40 years, where, for example, climate change started out as something that the coal industry was was saying and the oil industry was saying, this isn't true, this isn't happening. Um, And and it just spread and spread to the point where now it dominates the Republican Party and our White House and our Senate. It's so convenient to believe that stuff. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is uh, Barbara Fries, author of a new book, Industrial Strength Denial. And I wasn't a big watcher of Mad Men, but they, you know, it was the advertising world of the 50s and 60s. I remember, A, cigarettes used to be advertised on TV, and B, in the magazines and on TV, they'd have doctors mm. talking about lucky strikes I think it was, mm-hmm. being decent for you. I mean, it was an absolute lie. But I, I think lots of the, the different brands use doctors to try to sell their products. Yeah, it was crazy. Oh, interesting point. Um, so social media is something relatively new. And it's it's big, in my opinion. I mean, Zuckerberg may try to oh say, oh, shucks, little old me. No, but it it's... It's like a Wild West or the the image of a Wild West where the truth, you know, it used to be when I was growing up, there were three networks and the uh, educational channel, and that's where you got your news. And now uh, how there's social media, so it's just anything can be said and some amazingly bizarre things are said. I mean, that whole thing about uh, some pizza joint Back in 2016, <laughs> supposedly uh, Hillary Clinton uh, torturing children or something like yeah. that. It's just and people believed it. And yeah. somebody went in with a with a semi-automatic to try to rescue the kids there. Mm. Now, so this social media in general, how has that affected corporations' relationship with the truth, and with the importance and ability to more successfully bend the truth? Yeah, well, you know, as as we've been discussing, a lot of what I've written predates social media, and clearly a corporation could use mass media uh, to promote misinformation for a long time. But with social media, things can spread so far, and then they can last forever out there on the Internet, yes. and and there isn't the same kind of journalistic effort to, to sort of do some fact-checking, or if there is, it hardly matters because they're not going to get the bad stuff off of the Internet. So it has definitely made it easier to, to spread falsehoods. If you're a corporation, you still have to worry about lawsuits, for example, but you can find ways to get the information out there through advocacy groups or, or front groups. And then, of course, you've got... I mean, social media is kind of a vague term, but yeah. if we use it to encompass the whole kind of fractured information landscape and all of the 
you know, right-wing media. I suppose one could include left-wing media, though in this case they're using the right-wing media. Um, you know, you just have a much, much harder time uh, stamping out the, the bad information. Uh, and, of course, you you just don't have anything like the, the kind of social trust. I mean, I think that's a really mm. big point here, that, that corporate denial, you know, they helped uh, found and fund some of the original anti-regulatory groups. They would sometimes call themselves think tanks, and they would be out there uh, fighting the EPA on all kinds of different laws and, and ultimately promoting this notion that, uh, first of all, government can't do anything, markets can do everything, and oh, yes. government um, relies on junk science, and you cannot trust their scientists, you can only trust ours, and, and creating so much kind of really cynical distrust that uh, it made people really vulnerable. Because if you cannot trust the, the institutions your society has set up to try to determine what is real and what isn't, then you're really left vulnerable to your own biases and your own tribe's biases. And so then somebody comes along and says, you know, climate change isn't real and you don't have to worry about people taking your SUV away. And it just, it feels so much more comfortable. And, you know, that I think that has left us in our currently very fractured position where, you know, we have a president who not only doesn't believe in climate change, but, you know, didn't even accept the science of ozone depletion, which was settled decades ago. And, of course, now we have him leading us through a pandemic where we need somebody who actually believes in science and believes in expertise and ideally believes in government and that it can do good things. And uh, so I, I do think these dots do connect. It is really remarkable how it seems like there are people, you know, in the advertising industry, whatever, who they, they must be able to figure out psychologically what makes people feel good. What do they want to believe? It's easier. Mm -hmm. I mean, myth is so much easier uh, mm -hmm. to, to, you know, to, uh, to shore up the beliefs you already have and to play into that rather than, uh, you know, discomforting fact. It's, uh, <laughs> it, is, it is fascinating. And you mentioned Trump. He has to come up. I cannot believe the timing here. Just today, I got an email. Uh, I don't know how I get on this Trump stuff, but I, I, it's interesting to look at. Trump campaign announces launch of Truth Over Facts investigative website. And it goes on to say, Donald J. Trump for President, Inc. announced the launch of Truth Over Facts, an investigative website, oh yeah, aimed at uncovering the truth behind Joe Biden's never-ending, seemingly incomprehensible statements. Uh, the, the website goes on to say, it takes a closer look at Biden's words and phrasing and brings in experts mm -hmm, to discern if there is hidden meaning behind the muddled declarations. That is amazing, really. To, you know, it, it plays on people's Oh, you know, I don't understand. What does he really mean? Talk yeah. about that, yeah, if you would, please. That, well, I mean, the title of that, Truth Over Facts, really sounds like a parody. And <laughs> I, I, I just have, it's just so hard to believe. Um, you know, it does kind of harken back to earlier disputes, even a couple of decades ago, where there was discussion about the reality-based community versus those who were going to create their own reality. Uh, uh, it, it seems almost like, 
you know, that that has just gone to the most bizarre extremes, and, and we're seeing it happen now. Uh, yeah, it, it is. Uh, and, and certainly, I, I believe it was Goebbels who said, uh, just t- describe about what's true about yourself. Pin that on the other side. And people oh. will believe it, you know. And, well, and it, did he? I didn't know. I didn't realize that. And if he, if I had known it, I would have put that quote in because I do have a section in the book talking about how uh, these industries, particularly the, the fossil fuel industries, use projection to accuse their critics of huh. that which they are far more, you know, legitimately accused of. So they'll talk about the, the greed of the quote industry unquote that's trying to promote this global warming hoax, right? Or they'll talk about the deception of the industry. They'll talk about how it's politically persecuting other people. They'll talk about how it's, uh, you know, hysterical and fear-mongering. Now, Mm. to be clear, those of us worried about climate change are really worried about climate change, and and there's a lot of of reason to to be afraid of it. But but, but they're suggesting that it is unbased in reality. Um, And I, I talk about how each of those accusations and a couple of others are, are much better brought against the, the climate deniers. One of one of their accusations is that this is all sort of being advanced by an elite. A lot oh, of climate yes. denial, of course, has taken on a very populist tone in the last few years. Um, and there's this one great ad. In fact, Jane Mayer talks about this in her book, um, where uh, I think it was a it was in Virginia a political ad where you've got. Um, an actor portraying a very rich person who says that he's um, he represents, I think he's called Carlton the eco-hypocrite, and yeah. he wants to see cap-and-trade put in place to because he doesn't care about poor people, and he really wants to maybe somehow make money off of this and how he has multiple homes and made his money on Wall Street or, or has many cars, something like that. And then it turns out that ad is sponsored by... Um, I think it was Americans for Prosperity, uh-huh. ultimately founded and funded by David Koch, who yes. was, before he died, the richest person in New York City, for whom all of these things about multiple cars and homes were, in fact, true. Uh, so it was just the, the most astonishing example of you know, extreme wealth uh, being then conveyed through all of these channels and sort of portraying its position as representing the little guy, Whereas the scientists and, and the people who are really trying to be activists on this issue are, are characterized as the elite. Yeah, that's such a, a, a useful uh, way of seeing things, way of framing things. The, uh, you know, populism. People, I mean, Hitler used populism and lots of people on the far right in Hungary, Viktor Orban is using populism to enrich the already powerful they, and, and already rich. And this thing about elites, yeah, just, you know, people, I think, uh, this populist thing, people want to feel like, oh, it's just plain folks, just one of us, and it's those other people. You know, the, and then that thing about choosing winners, I remember in terms of American energy policy, when there were suggestions that uh, our tax dollars be used to help develop sustainable, clean energy. Oh, you can't choose winners. Well, guess what? We already have chosen winners, the oil and coal, for example. And speaking of coal, uh, how did, you know, after writing uh, your book about uh, coal, a human history, how did you first become interested in what you call in industrial denial? How did this book, you know, come to be written? 
Right. Well, some of it happened before I wrote the coal book and some of it after, because it was before I wrote coal that I was cross-examining coal industry witnesses, and that was really the first time I confronted climate denial. Frankly, it was also the first time I confronted climate science. We're talking about the mid-90s now, so I'm going way back. Um, And at the time, I actually really wanted to believe what these coal industry witnesses were saying, which is that it was not going to be a big deal, and even if it happened, we were going to like it and and whatnot. Um, But I did have to look at the science. My client was the state uh, pollution control agency, and we were looking at the mainstream science, and I became just horrified at how these folks who seemed like pretty normal people were willing Mm. to ignore this enormous risk um, and then I and then I uh, wrote coal, and after coal, I worked for various uh, nonprofit groups trying to push for for um, clean energy and and climate protection laws. And there, I confronted more climate denial, and I had seen it over the years spreading from the industry through society and being adopted by people who had no real stake in fossil fuels, or at least no more than anybody else did, mm. but somehow still believed this and. So I started really viewing this as a very powerful social phenomenon. I think that's the only way to really understand it. And once you start seeing denial that way, you start to ask, well, where else has this taken society? How far from reality? And and how did we finally overcome it if we did overcome it? And what exactly were the denials being used? And that sort of curiosity is what got me to plunge back into the historical archives, and and I came back up with these eight stories. I'm always so respectful of people who plunge into historical archives. They do all (laughs) the work for us. It's very much appreciated. It's a a lot of tedious work, but then we, the public, get to see it in a lot easier and less less effort. Now, how did you pick the eight denial campaigns that you feature in the book? Yeah, you know, it was a a little hard because there's a lot to choose from. there is. but I, first of all, I wanted it to be clear that there was a lot of evidence. So this wasn't just reasonable minds having a dispute over what the facts were. And, you know, I very much believe in factual debate. It's critical for science. It's critical for policy. But these were cases where the evidence was so extreme that I really didn't have to uh, ask myself, you know, does smoking cause cancer? Is nicotine addictive? Was slavery brutal? Those things are, are pretty well settled, and I didn't want my readers then to have to worry about whether these things were true or not. So I wanted a lot of evidence. I wanted the harm to be a big one. You know, I didn't want this to be one little product that hurt a few people. And and for the most part, the industries I focus on really do harm millions of people, either their health or their financial well-being or their talk, or we're talking about some really extreme uh, environmental damages. And I also wanted the uh, denial to be public and sustained. So I'd have lots of source material to, to kind of look for similarities and differences, and also because I'm really interested in how this denial affected the the social debate, the social norm, what did people think, how did it affect policy, and those are all issues that I go into. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and uh, democracy is uh, necessary to uh, be able to shape our own future, and there are those interests who can lie uh, and have a lot of power to it and and shape our future for us, but uh, 
we need to find out about that. The book is called Industrial Strength Denial. Our guest is its author, Barbara Fries. And as, as we know, the oil interests used to deny that what they do has any effect on climate change. How, how the anti-regulatory lobbyists, I imagine they get paid a fair amount of money. And I wonder how they and similar groups intentionally keep the old, not altogether honest line alive, even though we know oil does affect climate change. What, what do they do? How do they intentionally keep the old uh, line alive? Well, you know, as I noted, there there is this spread from the original corporate denial into these kind of right-wing anti-regulatory groups. And that absolutely happened with uh, climate change and, and climate denial in the fossil fuel industry. And by the way, there's still folks within the fossil fuel industry, especially coal um, and, and also other parts of the oil industry. The big oil majors generally accept climate change as real, but you still have uh, Charles Koch, for example, describing this as mild and manageable and not mm. a big problem, and, and he's involved in the oil refining business, of course. Um, so so I think things really did spread uh, I think it helped, frankly, that you had the tobacco industry first involved because they helped start some of these groups, and then they could attract all of this money from the fossil fuel industry. And then ah. the groups, so so the EPA, or, I'm sorry, the, the tobacco industry actually talked about back in the in the 90s trying to get all of EPA's enemies together um, and, and talked in the 80s about trying to make... Uh, common cause with, liberta- with libertarian and conservative groups. Um, and it's hard to exactly know which of these plans they really followed up on, but, but clearly tobacco industry helped launch some of these groups. The fossil fuel industry helped launch more and to fund them. The libertarian movement, the Koch brothers in particular, got involved in this. So they start these groups, and then the groups can continue with a denial, even if, the say, the major oil companies who have to worry about you know, SEC regulations and shareholders and things like that, they may back off of their original denial and say, yes, this is a problem, but the denial keeps getting perpetuated by these other groups. And then, of course, they got just tremendous political power in this country. So, So it just keeps going. And as Bob Dylan said, money doesn't talk, it swears. It's got so much power in Washington. And uh, the truth, I don't know how they sleep at night personally, but they this, I, I don't know, people who, uh, well, anyway, it's all different points of view in this country, and uh, but, but just knowingly lying, I just, I don't know, I suppose the tribalism is a factor there. What about, what about being, you know, we've, we've seen lies told about other tribes, you know, and nationalism, you tell lies about the other nations, the other people. I mean, Trump has used the whole fear of, People with darker skin coming from Mexico, invading, that was the word he used, America. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's just lies about the other, but it connects with people somehow. Well, absolutely does. I mean, I I touch on a little bit of the social psychology and some of the neuroscience that look at tribalism and, and various other factors that get involved here. Uh, but tribalism is just so remarkably powerful, and it doesn't have to be based on any, you know, deep ethnic differences or or racial. I mean, it often is, but it can. You can bring people into the laboratory and just basically divide them up at random, 
and tell them, okay, you're the red group and you're the blue group, and they will start to perceive each other differently. They'll start to perceive the behavior of others differently. I mean, it has an amazing and immediate impact on the mind. Um, and, you know, a lot of my book is about mm. what I assume are lies, but a lot of my book is is about, you know, I, I don't necessarily claim these are all lies. I think some of these people really have persuaded themselves that what they're saying is true, which is in some ways even sure. more frightening and dangerous. Oh, yes. And people do believe these things are true. It's it's uh, like I, I was just talking with somebody uh, earlier today about uh, people who say, oh, don't touch my Medicare. You know, we don't want any government involvement at all. Uh, and people, people, you know, it's, it's easy to get confused, especially with all the media coming at us 24-7. And I, I wonder how, I mean, at first I thought the, you know, CNN and 24-7 news would be a good thing. But now I'm starting to wonder. And I wonder if that helps corporate denial uh, to spread. Your thoughts on that? Well, I certainly think that when when you've got all of these networks, and, and particularly, let's let's be honest, Fox, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that has all this time to fill, they've got to keep coming up with ever more sensational things, and and that means you know blowing up little things into big things, and and trying to spin it in the most uh, provocative way, oh, yeah. and and it's obviously much easier if you're if you're reinforcing people's pre-existing biases um so yeah i think that has itself become an industry and and it really does worry me to to think about what it has done and how are we going to get past this particularly divided moment in time particularly when this is exactly when we need to be coming together and recognizing our interdependence and i'm and i'm not just talking about covid-19 though that's huge uh, i'm talking about the climate crisis are there, you know, other examples? I mean, I am not anti-capitalist. There are some people who say, you know, they just simplify it. Capitalism is bad. Throw out capitalism. I wonder. I mean, I, I, uh, Dick Gephardt used to talk about uh, capitalism with a conscience. Are there examples of corporations finding out they are causing harm and owning up to it? And and what laws? would you suggest that help make that reaction more common? It must be difficult for them to do that. Oh, I think it's really difficult. And of course, I'm focusing on cases where um, the the issue in question is uh, usually whether there's going to be a big new law regulating them or, or whether they're going to have to go out of business because their core product is really, really damaging. And in those cases, yeah. I uniformly have found denial, and, and I'd be surprised to find otherwise. Certainly, where you've got a situation where you've already got a kind of regulatory construct, uh, laws already in place, um, then you will find companies certainly saying, okay, we're, we're going to recall this product. Uh-huh. Now, they may well be doing that because if they didn't voluntarily recall it, they would be required to recall it. But basically, they're operating within a new set of rules, and they're functioning within those rules, and that's fine. Um, but obviously, if you're, if you're going to try to plunge in and, and try to do things differently, if, for example, a cleaner technology that costs more than a polluting technology, you're going to be at a market disadvantage. and. Uh, so that just makes yeah, it very, yeah. very hard for people, and that's one of the reasons why government needs to step in, because otherwise you'll you'll have a race to the bottom, and, and we've certainly seen that. Oh, we certainly have seen that, and uh, I, I just, you know, it, it, there must be 
quite a bit of money spent researching what's going to work with people. For example, Walmart started to get a reputation that they weren't so good to their employees, but then they, they clearly had these ads to uh, show off their happy employees. So, so, you know, it's not quite lies, but they, they want to steer their business through the, uh, the uncertain waters, if you will. And, sure. and it's, uh, it's not necessarily lies, but I, I just, uh, I, I would think they can be affected by public opinion. I, I wonder how, oh, sure. uh, you know, if there's a, 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 a you know, a turning point uh, at, at which corporations will say, ah, you know what, it's not worth it. You mean it's not worth it doing the wrong thing? Yes, doing the wrong yeah, thing. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I want to acknowledge, I think there's a lot of people out there working for corporations who want to do the right thing. I think there's a lot of investors who want to invest yes. in companies that yes. do the right thing. Absolutely. You've got a, a pretty big socially responsible investment movement, and companies yep. are trying to obviously highlight themselves in the best possible um, position, and, and obviously then you have to worry, is this just spin? Is this greenwash, if you're talking about environmental oh, right. stuff? Um, but but I do think that that instinct to want to do it the right way is definitely in there. It's just that we continue to have a system that that suppresses that yeah. and, and meanwhile rewards and, and just narrows the focus so tightly on the short-term bottom line um, and, and diminishes our natural concern for others. I mean, I, I kind of come at this from the perspective that, yes, of course, we have a selfish uh, instinct, um, but that human nature also includes a, a pro-social instinct yes. and empathy, and that the society we build um, can can either amplify one instinct or the other or, or suppress one instinct or the other, and that the corporation, particularly big co- corporations operating in global competitive markets, um, are are designed, almost purpose-designed, to uh, enhance the pursuit of self-interest, let's say, or or greed, and to punish uh, social responsibility. And then you add on top of that an ideology that says that the corporation's only legitimate goal is to maximize shareholder profits, and that markets are, you know, free and and wonderful and can do everything, and and government is tyranny and can't do anything. Um, and, And you have this situation where our better instincts are constantly being squelched and our worst instincts are constantly rewarded. I thought it was amazingly uh, courageous for Bernie Sanders in his uh, campaign toward the end of it to, to talk about being good to people you don't know, standing up, fighting for people you don't know. I wonder if there was any research done into that. That just really surprised me, quite frankly. But, you know, it it shows, you know, the better angels of our nature, that there is some of that there, and that he would talk about that. I don't know. I found that hopeful, dare I say. (laughs) Well, you know, I I think about that as sort of uh, in the context of the chapter I wrote about the financial crisis and the, the internal culture that was being um, facilitated there, which uh, you won't be surprised to hear was the exact opposite <laughs> of that sentiment. I mean, the the yeah. uh, exploitation um, that was being celebrated, just this incredibly aggressive drive, not just to make money, but to you know rip your client's face off. I mean, it was just so yeah. so personal and aggressive, and and writing off their clients and their customers as idiots and, and muppets and people to be exploited, uh, 
you know, it, that, that exploitation mm-hmm. culture, boy, I, you know, hope it has diminished a little bit since the crisis. Um, I, I don't have a lot of evidence of that, but, you know, it was just so astonishing, especially to somebody like me who just has no experience in that industry, yeah. uh, to find out what people were saying and writing and doing. Um, and and so I guess this is a roundabout way of saying that I do believe that the the culture really does matter. It's not just the material incentives. It's the messages we send each other about whether it's legitimate to care about each other, whether it's required to exploit each other. Those messages do matter. And, and so I think it is important that we keep talking about this and keep speaking out against exploitation and, and recognizing um, the harm that, that corporate activity does and that corporate deception does and stand up and insist on, on better. And the world knows that America is much more uh, religious than most other countries in the West. But I wonder, you know, I mean, the values that you're talking about, and that I tend to agree with, are, you know, like uh, doing the right thing, uh, not doing to your neighbor what you wouldn't want done to yourself. Mm. I'd like to think that that is a part of our culture, and I, I don't know. I mean, people, you know, who claim to be religious people who uh, are all for, uh, you know, dictatorship and uh, corporate control of everything and denying people of color their rights. Mm. I, it's it's confusing. Many of the chapters in your book deal with science denial in general. What commonalities? did you see in how different industries dealt with scientific uncertainties? Well, one of the first things that, that happens anytime there is a question of science is the industry in question immediately assumes, and, and although this may be just sort of implicit, that the burden of proof falls on those raising concerns. It's, it's always like, well, uh-huh. um, they're not necessarily saying that smoking is, is safe, well, sometimes they are, but, but they are more generally saying something like, there's no proof that smoking causes cancer or heart disease or whatever. It's uh-huh. the, the no proof argument. Now, so what happens is, as lawyers, we're very familiar with burden of proof as sure. a very important concept, right? But in these public debates, um, the, what happens is the burden of proof is put on those raising the concern, which is not surprising anytime you're talking about an established practice or an established industry, at least at first, people are going to want to know, well, what proof do you have? Um, sure. Where I raise the objection, though, is that that just continues on and on and on so that decades later, they're still acting as if the burden of proof should remain on their critics and, and never acknowledging that at some point the burden of proof should shift to the industry to prove that what they are doing is safe. And, and if that were to happen, we'd see very, very different debates about all kinds of things, and, and of course, especially climate change. So, so you, you shift the burden of proof onto your critics. That means, sure. by definition, you get the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. And that means, by definition, that you have a tremendous incentive to manufacture as much doubt as possible. And there's always going to be some doubt. All you have to do is amplify it and keep referring to it and, and exaggerating it. And that's one of the safest things, because legally, you know, you're not quite that expensive as if you're saying something that is absolutely true or, or making a very clear assertion about something. If you just keep raising doubt, you can keep benefiting. And, and what happens is you don't, you don't even need to 
be all that credible. I mean, the tobacco industry and the Tobacco Institute in, in I think it was 1986, claimed that the Surgeon General was undermining scientific integrity and, and uh, mm. exercising scientific censorship. Now, nobody in the 1980s believed the Tobacco Institute in terms of their own scientific integrity. They were almost a joke already in terms of being just the poster child of, of denial and, and sort of motivated science. Um, and I don't think they expected to increase their own credibility. All they really wanted to do was to bring down the credibility of government science and the science mm. government relies on. So I, I think that that sort of distrust, um, you know, that they started to fuel it, it, it started, it kept expanding with other industries. Uh, mm. That is the sort of thing that happens in all of the situations of science denial. And again, then you start to erode trust, not just in government, but in mainstream science and journalism, um, in academia, and then all you're left with is your self-interest and your tribalism because you have no other way of knowing what's true anymore. And yet that's so pervasive. And I think now about, uh, you know, the whole COVID-19 stuff and people hating science. They deny science. They People gathering together and saying, you know, oh, what do they know? And mm-hmm. it's, it's appalling to me how people can just... Uh, den- Deny science. I, I, yeah. I, I don't really, it's more comfortable, I suppose. I mean, I'd love to go back to socializing. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I miss it very much, but I don't want to get COVID-19 either. And I do right. tend to trust science. I really yeah. do. And, and Trump clearly hates science and, uh, you know, wants to do what he can to uh, destroy belief in it and, <laughs> and help his, his buddies in the various industries that we're alluding to here right. in our discussion. Well, you know, the thing is, I, I think that Trump, he wouldn't say, you know, I hate science. On the, other, on, the contrary, on the contrary, he'll talk about how his uncle was at MIT and, and he'll hold himself up as being you know, super smart about these scientific oh, issues. Yes. Um, but stable genius. What, yeah, the stable <laughs> genius, exactly, who really, who really gets this stuff. Um, but I think what he wants to do is undermine any credibility for the, the kind of scientific authorities, if, if I could use that term, the, the scientific establishment even, the scientific community, um, to suggest that science is just about, you know, smart people here and there, as opposed to this huge social structure built up over centuries to help us sort fact from fiction. Um, and, and then he can hold himself up as somebody you might as well believe about some drug, even though he's never actually, you know, learned much about that drug, although yeah. now apparently he's taking it, so no maybe way. he'll learn something. Um, uh, but, you know, it's not so much science per se, it's, it's kind of the, the bulwarks we have put in place over the centuries so that we, where scientists keep each other honest, these systems we put in place that societies relied on, like peer review, um, that that are really attacked both by corporations and and yeah. by our president. Having to have the patience that is necessary for clinical trials, you know, it's not for the average person, I guess. Exactly. But I mean, my goodness, your clinical trials, it's a big, big, important step when it comes to pharmaceuticals and drugs. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is uh, Barbara Fries. We're talking about her new book, Industrial Strength Denial. 
And as an amateur student of American history, it does seem that ever since Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, which described horrible conditions in many industries, those, those industries have been making war on any and all regulation. And much of the public has enthusiastically joined the fight against regulation. In the early 20th century, the public anger had the political power to force the government to regulate. I wonder where that power is now. How did the corporate interests so effectively sway the public to be against regulation? Mm. You know, I, I think the way I would look at that is that there's always been corporate opposition to regulation, and there's always been a certain public desire for it. Um, and, you know, just you swing a few percentage points one way or the other, and you can really change policy dramatically. And, you know, certainly you're right. There there was a move early in the century to put in place laws that regulated industries like the meatpacking industry. Um, there was also, of course, a huge wave of laws during the New Deal to regulate banking and, and put in place labor laws and, and whatnot. Right. There was also a huge wave of laws following... Um, well, consumer laws and environmental laws in the 60s and the yes. 70s. So I think we see that pendulum swinging ah, back and yeah. forth, and, and so I can see at least three swings in the 20th century, and I hope we might be leading up to another swing right now. Um, and, and I thought that, you know, I wrote the book before the pandemic, mm. but it struck me that there was, a, you know, just a lot of concern about capitalism generally, um, which kind of surprised me. I mean, some of the surveys showing that younger people are, have a more favorable view of socialism than capitalism. Yeah. And, you know, and even some older people, even the, the support for this thing that's been the pillar of, of political rhetoric in our country and such an important part of our economy, um, the fact that so many people don't have a positive view of it, you know, I think that's really important. And it suggests that we may be moving toward another sort of New Deal-type uh, mm. era, mm. Uh, perhaps a Green New Deal-type era, or, or maybe something comparable to the 60s or 70s, where there's just a, a enough concern about corporate malfeasance and dishonesty to, to motivate some changing laws. Boy, would that be... and, and I think COVID could help that. Yeah, I think, I, I hope you're right, obviously. I mean, maybe we're at a tipping point here. And, you know, certainly the COVID-19 crisis, uh, uh, before that happened, we knew about an opioid addiction crisis. The big and politically powerful pharmaceutical companies tried to blame the customers for lacking self-control. And a lot of people bought into that. They said, well, they should control it. It's up to the individuals. But since then, the, the Sackler family that owned pharma has been sued into bankruptcy. And this seems to be an example of corporate dishonesty and misbehavior. Do you think we've learned from that? Are there lessons that can be applied elsewhere? And is, have we gotten that, do you think? <laughs> well, I, you know, certainly that echoes some of, you know, many of the earlier controversies and, and the notion particularly of blaming the victim, uh, particularly when you're selling oh, yes. them something addictive. Yeah. Um, we, we certainly saw that with tobacco. Um, we saw that it actually raises 
uh, to me, uh, echoes of the auto industry that for a long, long time, I mean, they weren't denying that people were dying in auto crashes. Obviously, they were. But they were saying, well, that's because they're bad drivers. You know, Mm -hmm. it's about the attitudes of the drivers and if the drivers have a safe attitude and, and do everything right, there won't be any crashes. And they did not take any responsibility for trying to make their cars safer when inevitably there were millions of crashes. Um, And so similarly here, you have a product that uh, is so inherently dangerous in the opioids that they didn't take responsibility for trying to keep it from being, you know, from from killing lots of people. I I think another lesson is simply that this pattern happens again and again and again. We Mm -hmm. see a discovery of some new product or, or some new method of doing things. We see people racing in um, very motivated people who find a way to exploit this discovery and, and uh, make a lot of money. And, and we then see harms emerging that have to be discovered and, and talked about by other people and brought to the industry. Then there's usually some decades of denial oh, yes. um, during which time there's going to be litigation. There will be increasing media coverage. Eventually, usually there'll be some states that get involved and try to regulate Finally, the federal government will get involved and try to regulate, um, and then there will be put in place usually a law. Uh, I'm skipping some parts here, but basically, you know, it's the it's the mechanism it's a of a populist democracy, and it's a very very long process. And so, you know, one question I try to raise in this book, and alas, I wish I could better answer it, is how can we shortcut that process? But no. I do certainly think a, a, a pendulum swing where we reduce corporate power over our democracy and over our elections and, and therefore over mm. our policymaking is a big part of that. Yeah, it's interesting how FDR was just so right on the money when he talked about, you know, either the corporations own the government or the government has control over the corporations. And I, I hope it's swinging. I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of people, I think most people still think, the government shouldn't get in the way of the market. People have bought into that. And I think that's coming back to, you know, denial that uh, that that the public, so much of the public believing that, that the market can solve everything, that the government just doesn't have a role, that enables lying. What can be done? What can be done to reduce the threat of industrial strength denial? How can we reinvigorate the regulatory power of our government? Well, a lot of it is just electoral, and it's not like that is going to be easy, but I think when there's enough sure. sentiment, you know, you do get, you you can make changes. Um, I think you're right in terms of sentiment about government not being able to do things, right. but I think that sentiment is way, way overrepresented in Washington compared to among the public, and um, so I, I think there is actually a greater recognition that markets can be deeply flawed and that they promote concentration of wealth and that they offer zero solution to things like climate change and 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 that we need government uh, to, to help us deal with these global crises. And, and so, you know, that is where I get some shred of hope that this health disaster might lead us in a, in a better direction, at least in terms of how we think about the problems that society can solve and that government can solve and that markets cannot solve, at least not alone. 
not alone. And let's uh, let's hope. I mean, and, and a lot of the young people saw Democrats as also kowtowing to those corporate interests as well. And that was one reason they went for Bernie so much. So the book is called Industrial Strength Denial. And I forget who the publisher? Uh, University of California. Press. Oh, excellent. Barbara Fries, thank you so much. And a little bit of hope every now and then is a good thing. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Bert. Thank you. 